Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Maria Hawthorne, who's the CEO of PS Business Parks, a largely industrial REIT based in Glendale, California. The company is a spin-out of an affiliate of Public Storage, the largest self-storage REIT, a relationship which we'll talk about in the interview. The similarities and contrast between our guests' stories and perspectives on leading voices are really interesting to me. I interviewed Maria at her office in Southern California the morning after my recent interview with Ricardo Pagan the night before at a ULI Young Leaders event. Most of you, I hope, listened to the conversation with Ricardo, so you'll know what I'm saying when I say that I came to the interview with Maria, really whipped up from the heroics in the conversation with Ricardo. And I guess it set a really high bar. In an opposite way, the conversation with Maria displayed heroics, but from a diametrically opposed perspective. First, there are similarities in pathway. Both Ricardo and Maria are Hispanic Americans, and both truly started from the ground floor in their careers. You've heard Ricardo's story of starting from less than ground zero, but Maria too. She started her real estate career in a temp role at public storage. So both started at or below the ground floor. Ricardo's story is one of bootstrapping and, in my words, leaping over tall buildings in a single bound. Maria's is the opposite, not bootstrapping, but blocking and tackling and carefully building a track record, relationships, and growth within a single company. Maria was vulnerable and honest on the podcast, both telling about a reset time at the company when the CEO sent her to the Center for Creative Leadership, where she took a deep dive on what it would take to move herself up into leadership. And then at the end of the podcast, talking about being shy and nervous about being in a conversation in front of you all. In both of these episodes, we hear stories of incredible career growth, both people who started at the ground floor or below but a contrast in pathway. One, the person who indeed jumped over those tall buildings, and two, the person who found success through a long career at one company. These are stories that can resonate with each of you in the listening audience, whether you're a building leaper or a blocker or tackler, or like many of us somewhere in the middle. There's always lessons to learn. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe. Please do share your favorite episodes with a friend. Please go into the archives and find an episode that you've not yet heard. And feel free to get in touch with me via our LinkedIn feed or directly to me at my day job at matt at Last comment, I recorded this interview with Maria on February 21st. We're releasing this podcast on March 16th. I recorded the rest of this introduction on March 16th, but it's now Friday, March 13th. Friday the 13th, and gosh, how life has changed in just a week with the country and indeed the world figuring out how to deal with the pandemic with various forms of lockdown taking place affecting all of us. This has and will affect the economy deeply in different parts of the real estate business, each in their own way in the short run. The long-term impact of accepting what societies and governments need to do to address these types of crises is fascinating especially in this political season as we're thinking about the appropriate role of government. Anyhow, I hope that you and your families and your companies are addressing the situation and first and foremost staying safe and being responsible in your personal and your work-life actions. If you find yourself with some extra hours on hand, listen in on more podcasts. As many of you know, I listen to the New York Times daily almost every day, which I recommend to everyone. Tim Ferriss's podcast is always amazing, and there's a great episode from last week where he interviews the Zen master Jack Kornfeld, where they talk about ways to hold these troubled times. And of course, do explore the Leading Voices library for interviews you might have missed. Stay safe. We'll be broadcasting in another couple of weeks. So, Maria, thank you very much. Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate here in your offices in Glendale. This is the first office I've been to that has roll-down doors. <laughs> well, no surprise, Public Storage is our mother company, and they are famous for the ubiquitous orange. The ubiquitous orange, yep. And thank you for the invitation, Matt. Well, we're really, really happy to do this. So maybe the place to get started, just kind of orient 
me and the listeners to what is PS Business Parks, and then we're going to talk about you and your career and unpack a whole lot of things, but kind of elevator speech, what is this company all about? Okay, so PS Business Parks is a public REIT with a total enterprise value of about $7 billion. We are classified as an industrial REIT because about 90% of our property is comprised of industrial product. Mm -hmm. And what makes us a little bit different than some of the other industrial REITs is that we specialize in multi-tenant buildings, in multi-building parks. And so for that reason, what I like to say is that we provide institutional ownership to Small Business America. Uh And Small Business America, when we think about industrial, because today industrial is the hottest sector, and how does the Amazon effect on the hottest sector affect your multi-tenant industrial buildings? Sure. And last mile and all that stuff. Okay, so that's a great question. So here's what where we benefit from what you call the Amazon effect, uh-huh. which I heard Prologis Hamid say that Amazon's responsible for about 45% of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And he may have gotten that from Amazon. I know that's their number one customer. Amazon has actually become one of our customers recently. Uh-huh. But we have a lot of these infill industrial locations. Mm-hmm. So for instance, we're in Long Beach, Signal Hill in the Bay Area. And what has happened is that if you have an Amazon account, as I'm sure most Americans do. do, so the next time you shop, most of the time it's fulfillment by Amazon. But for smaller products or regional products, you will see that it may be fulfilled by someone else. And so that's small business America, because they're small users usually operating in a last mile location. It's these small companies mm-hmm. that, like I said, are located usually in infill, densely packed locations, they're the ones that can actually make that two-hour delivery time because it's not coming from 50 miles away from some huge distribution center. It's already located right in the community where it needs to be delivered. Mm -hmm. So that's like 90% of your portfolio. Yes. And the companies related to public storage. So kind of talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Well, the PS comes from public storage. Uh And so how that came about, uh, maybe I have to tell a little bit of the public storage story, is public storage was founded by two great entrepreneurs. And it was Wayne Hughes, Ken Volk, as entrepreneurs, as they started growing in the 70s, and then the 80s, and they started populating everywhere, communities started saying, okay, we don't necessarily want all your orange doors right in front of the street. So put a little bit of commercial property up, and then you can have your warehouses, the mini warehouses in the back. Uh So they started building and developing some of these multi-tenant Industrial, So they were retail strip, but mostly flex and industrial strip centers. Mm -hmm. And they were in such great locations that Wayne and Ken, being very smart entrepreneurs, they said, hey, there really is something to this commercial business. So then they started buying and acquiring commercial properties. And so PS Business Parks was the commercial property division of public storage. Mm -hmm. And also, let's put ourselves in the time place of that, the places that they were working to put in the orange doors or the self-storage, an industry that they really created as a national platform. It had always existed, but not nationally. Those locations were suburban locations because that's where the people were who needed the storage. That's right. And so they focused, they already knew because their public storage is in something like 47 states or something like that. And so they knew what the best markets were already. So that's where they focused their commercial. This is why we're located mainly on the West Coast, Miami, D.C., and then Dallas and Austin. Mm -hmm. So we're not nearly as geographically diverse as public storage, but we're definitely in the very tip-top markets and and what is today the top industrial markets. Mm -hmm. And then in the 
mid-90s, starting around 96, public storage said, okay, let's, we're going to spin off Mm -hmm. uh, the commercial property group. So we went public in 1998 Mm -hmm. as a REIT. But however, public storage has remained our largest shareholder. They own about 42% of PS Business Parks. Mm -hmm. We share corporate headquarters, and then we also share back office departments like legal IT, which is a huge benefit to PS Business Parks because public storage is a Fortune 500 company. So we are able to leverage off of that Fortune 500 platform, uh, which is hugely beneficial to us as a a smaller REIT. So we were starting with the story of what this company is in order to talk about you, but kind of maybe finish the story because at 98, there's an IPO, just kind of quickly kind of the big changes, the sectoral changes through the history of this company, and then we're going to talk. Okay, sure. So when we started, we were about four and a half million square feet. Mm -hmm. So pretty small, about a half a billion dollars. And Ron Havner was the original CEO. Uh And Ron Havner took us public. He had started, he came from being the CFO of public storage, then came to PS Business Parks, took us public. Uh And then four years later, he stepped away from PS Business Parks to become the CEO of public storage. It's a story we're going to hear again in just a second, I think. Yes, it is. Uh, And so he went upstairs to public storage, but remained as our chairman of the board. Uh And so what was amazing, and I feel like I've had two great mentors in this business, the first being Ron. Ron is a capital markets expert. Uh He is a man of high integrity. He is somebody who was included me because I was on the East Coast at that time. So when we went public, I was included on investor tours, banking tours. So that opened my eyes Mm -hmm. to the entire world of capital markets. Right. And then Joe came in Uh as CEO. Joe Russell. Joe Russell. Uh He had come from another REIT. Speaker, I think. Speaker. Uh And was very successful as a developer Joe is a real real estate guy. So where Ron took us public and created our culture, which is very similar to public storages, Joe then came in and it was a great handoff. Joe refined the markets we were in. Mm-hmm. And so from Joe, I really understood and learned different items about what makes a market good. Like for instance, like we always wanna be in markets and then in the particular sub-markets that are the, in a down cycle, it's real estate, it goes up and down. Uh So you wanna always be in the markets that are the last to get hit and the first to recover. Uh So, and Joe really refined those markets. And then, like I said, you know, you had Joe and Ron, with Ron still as chairman. Then Ron, in 2014, decided he wanted to step back from being CEO. Uh So from 14 through 16, it was a matter of succession planning. Uh Uh, So it was very long, well thought out. So the company, I had been in the D.C. market and the East Coast for 25 years, I was brought back to California uh-huh. and became president of PS Business Parks, uh-huh. which allowed Joe to step up, become the president of public storage. Uh-huh. And then this year, January 1st, 2019, I guess that's last year uh-huh. now, Ron stepped back. So he's now the chairman of both public storage and PS Business Parks. And Joe became CEO. Of public storage. Of public storage. And, and became... I, right, I became CEO actually in 16 of PS Business Parks when Joe went upstairs to become president. So it was a long transition, which allowed for both Joe and for me, which really allowed us to grow in our positions as CEO. So it was a very smooth transition mm-hmm. and succession for both companies. Mm-hmm. And you had both boards. And so you kept the same culture with how similar the culture of both companies are. Uh-huh. The boards 
work together. And so I really feel like it could really be a case study for succession planning and CEO transitions. Not many companies are married to each other in this way. So that's a, one benefit you don't have. Yes. But you keep saying culture. What What are the headlines of that culture that's com- particularly common between the two companies? Okay. The first, and then this speaks to me very directly. I uh-huh. started with public storage in 1985, went over to the commercial properties group in 1988. So the best thing was the fact that from the beginning, and maybe this comes from our entrepreneurial roots, Uh is this company really recognizes employees based on merit, and it has always been a meritocracy. And so I was very fortunate to join this company as a woman in the mid-80s and to join a company that never saw race or sex. I'm Hispanic. I was a woman in commercial properties, which is definitely a male-dominated industry, but that was never an issue for me Uh in this organization. Uh So culturally, I feel these companies were way ahead of the times Uh uh, because they would all, promotion was always based upon merit Uh and what you could contribute to the organization. Uh The other thing, and this is a guiding light, is integrity. And integrity is not always being by yourself and doing the right thing, but it's how you act with other people, whether it's vendors, brokers, the capital markets, there's just high integrity doing business and taking the long view. Mm -hmm. So that we're not, while obviously we're concerned with long-term growth and in total shareholder return, obviously, but it's long-term. We don't live the quarter to quarter. Uh And so that's what I would say in the culture. So that has really been a culture of collaboration. Uh If you think about how we collaborate, public storage employees can come to PS Business Parks and vice versa. Uh There's collaboration with the board. And then we always, always stress collaboration out in the field between leasing and management. So let's use that to segue okay. to the Maria story. Sure. So we know when you started here, but go from before starting, where'd you grow up, kind of a little bit about family, a little about school, and you didn't start your career in real estate. So talk about each of those things. Okay, sure. Well, I grew up in San Diego, a great place to grow up. Temperature is always 70 degrees. Yep. And uh, went to school in Southern California, Pomona College uh-huh. in school. Claremont. Uh-huh. Yes, a great education, very fortunate. And then I was actually recruited out of college into an executive training program for a large retail company. Uh-huh. And you study international relations. So my daughter went to Harvey Mudd, one of the five Claremont schools, I think. Absolutely, but that's more of the science and technology. She's the geek. She's very good. Oh, oh, my God, the geek. But you study international relations? Yes. So because I've always been multifaceted, so uh-huh. you'll see that in my career. It, it was also true in school. Pomona had a and still has a top international relations mm-hmm. curriculum. And that it really what international relations was is a combination of history, finance, economics, and as well as sociology. Mm-hmm. So really, if you think about it, it is a good basis for anybody who wants to go into business mm-hmm. because you have a strong finance background as well as working with people. The thought was was that, okay, I, I would go on, get a master's, maybe a doctorate, and then go into the diplomatic corps. That's what a lot of people at Pomona mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know why, but during my time at Pomona, I realized I did not want to become a government employee. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I've always been extremely competitive and wanted to do more on my own. Mm-hmm. So when I got recruited out of college, went in straight into management. Like I said, it was an executive training program. Uh-huh. So learned both sales, obviously retail, that's yeah. critical. Started buying children's clothing, then went out and ran one of the top department stores in LA. And after five years, I took a step back, uh-huh. got a little tired of when everyone else was on vacation or taking a holiday, I wanted to step back 
and take the skills I had learned in retail, but apply them to a different business. Okay. Went to a recruiter because uh-huh. that's you know how you found you jobs back then, uh-huh. and still do. I still do. Please, really, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> Matt. Remember everybody. But, but of course, every recruiter because I had such a sterling reputation and with my department store they wanted to put i mean it was very easy they kept putting retail jobs in front of me and so what happened was i took a job temporarily Uh as an executive assistant here at public storage in corporate accounting Uh and so after a few weeks i said i saw what the accountants were doing and i said well I can do that. Uh-huh. My father uh, had been head of an accounting department for an aeronautical company in San Diego. I decided, okay, I'm going to follow in his footsteps, become a CPA, and that will be a career. Uh-huh. And so while I was working at public storage, I took all... Then in the accounting group. So yes. you're not permanent, you're not... No, I'm, I wasn't an accountant yet. Right. I was an admin. Okay, still an in admin. In the accounting department. Yeah, yeah. So I went to UCLA Night School, took all the accounting classes that you need to take uh-huh. so that a CPA firm will hire you, yeah. and actually got a job offer from our auditor back then, Arthur Young. Uh-huh. Now it's Ernst & Young, uh-huh. EY. And had given notice uh-huh. and that because I was going to become a CPA and become an auditor. And so then at that point, what unbeknownst to me was that the head of the commercial property division for public storage knew me, wanted me to come work for her, but my current boss right. said, no, stay away from her. I don't want to lose her. So when she found out, I had given notice. Right. Uh, she offered me a job, and uh-huh. she said, "Look, you can go be an accountant, and that's nice and stable. But I am here to offer you a career." You said something about recruiters, and it's just really interesting. So I want to headline the comment, which is: You said you're trying to get out of retail. You talk to recruiters, and everyone would show you other retail opportunities. Correct. I call it um, jumping the chasm. And people come to me all the time and they say, well, I do this thing all the way over there. I'm a zookeeper. And now I want to get into real estate. And I go, well, that's a big chasm. Right. And a headhunter cannot help with a chasm jump. You just can't. And because we're, you know, our clients don't hire us for chasm jumpers. They mm-hmm. hire us for people who have the experience in the specific sector or the specific industry we're working in, which is real estate, of course. And so that's interesting point number one, just to go there. But then the second thing is that you had that option and the willingness to do a temp job. And the temp job that led to something else, and that's how you jumped that chasm. Right. And also a temp job as an EA is something a guy wouldn't do today. And I had friends from, I went to competitive college, and I had friends who were women who did that to jump chasms and get their foot in the door, and guys never did that. I don't know that women would do that today from those competitive colleges either, so it's a different time in the 80s. True. Long-winded comments. No, but but you're right, Matt. It was a different world, and getting into commercial properties is, it's not that easy to begin with, But especially in the mid-80s, I mean, as much as people might think it's male-dominated today, it really was in the 80s. And when you took that temp job, was it because you were attracted to commercial real estate or public storage, or this was while you were figuring things out? It literally, I was 24, I was trying to figure things out, or I was 24 to 25, and then I was trying to figure it out, and then I stayed in the position because then I said, okay... I'm going to become an accountant, go up the right. finance tree. I've always been ambitious. So I was thinking controller, right. CFO, didn't matter. And because what I saw, I mean, it was stuff I was capable of doing, right. and I like doing it. I've, uh-huh. I've always been attracted to the numbers. Uh-huh. And so that meant I needed a job while I was taking these night school classes at UCLA right. and getting all the accounting classes under my belt. Uh-huh. Okay, so then they get you not to leave and they say, okay, we're not going to offer you a job, we're going to offer you a career. Right. So let's continue the okay. story. So at that point, I had a sponsor. Uh-huh. Uh, she knew my work ethic. 
because in addition to having the job, I, I would still, to make extra money on the weekends, I actually worked in a, a department store. Uh-huh. I, I was always good at sales. And so she knew I had the two jobs and was doing night school. And so then she put me into leasing and management. Uh-huh. And let me tell you, from the sales background to my numbers that I had with the accounting classes, plus retail obviously is very numbers oriented when you're a buyer. Mm-hmm. It was like everything gelled Came together. together. Yeah. And I was off. I mean, in a year, I was responsible for properties. Mm-hmm. Within two years, I was responsible for the LA region. At that point, then the company. Uh, was struggling a little bit with their developments in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So literally, the month after I got married, uh-huh. the company asked me to move to Virginia. Uh-huh. <laughs> and how's that work for your then husband? Well... Or still uh, for your husband yes, and family. Yes, my husband. Okay, he's good. still my husband. He's still my husband. My He's wonderful. He Fortunately, he's a science fiction writer, published... Ooh successful in his own right as a writer and so but what's his name so his name's don hawthorne and so he look it up folks (laughs) so he's very supportive and as much as he loves living in southern california he Uh he can work anywhere so we packed up and we moved to northern virginia and what year is that and that was 1991. 91. Okay, so the company is still part of public storage. Still part of public so storage. Haven't hit the IPO yet. You went east. What did you solve? So what happened was we had. So I arrived in 91, and we had properties. They were 12% lease that had been open for two years. So step back. I, I my jaw just <laughs> dropped. <laughs> But 91 is pretty bad right then and there. This is SNL crisis. Correct. So there was the crisis. It was a new market for the company, not for public storage. It's actually one of their strongest markets. Right. But for commercial, we just had not been able to find our way yet. Uh-huh. And so my goal because after two years, they got to 12% occupancy. So my goal was in my first year Uh to get to 80% occupancy. Uh And so it was a big one, but you know, I had done well with the LA region and I actually made it to 85% occupancy in my first year. Now, that's an amazing feat, although also benefiting from its 92, not 91, right? So the economy's recovering itself. True. But you're taking these properties that are just dead. Right. And we went, I mean, it literally went from dead to full throttle. And so what I was doing was I was leasing, but then I was also building out the space because... Mm-hmm. It was shell space that I was leasing. Right. And so I was building out as I was leasing it, too. Uh-huh. So anyways, and that's how we operated back then. Since then, the company's evolved, and the management team is separate from leasing. Mm-hmm. But what that did for me was really set me up for becoming an executive. Because here, I had started in corporate accounting. I then went and had operations management and leasing mm-hmm. and, and tenant construction. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing base. And that right. I recognize I had that and was very fortunate, but that's actually hard to get today, mm-hmm. except maybe unless you're in some small private company or a public. Meaning the breadth, accounting for sure, but then leasing operations, tenant and improvements. And construction, right. So that breadth of that is usually more siloed in a company. Exactly, exactly. And to go back to your question on culture, Matt, Mm -hmm. I think that's another amazing thing about our company is that, and maybe this is because of me and I see how I've benefited from that, but we've always encouraged people, if it's a good employee, someone with the right ethics and the right work ethic, that if they want, to, as you say, jump a chasm, Mm -hmm. we'll give them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But because of how we were structured, because if you think about Wayne Hughes, he kind of did it 
did everything, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's how we were structured back then. We were still private. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me an amazing insight into all aspects of Mm -hmm. operations. One comment, I think it's an interesting point, is that the grandfather organization of commercial real estate would be Trammell Crow Companies. And the way that Trammell Crow had his business set up was he sent people, young MBAs, all guys, of course, <laughs> but he sent them to be leasing people first and foremost because yeah. they had to learn at the ground what the deal was. And they become, then they become developers and deal people and investment people. But having that broad understanding, almost dirt under the fingernails at the beginning and what the drivers of the business were was their MO for the business. And You that- had that. After I had that. I had really that. Good. But I will tell you this: uh-huh. when Joe went upstairs, and I know this isn't about Joe, but it's a cool story. Uh-huh. Um, his first two weeks at Public Storage, uh-huh. he was working in one of their stores. Wow! And he had the shirt, the name tag, and he was selling boxes, locks, and insurance in space. Uh-huh. So that is great, and that's how you learn the business. You learn who your customers are, right. and I recommend that for anybody. And so we hired a new CFO, and our CFO went out in the field, and he spent time in our field offices, because that's how you know who we are. I think one uncommon thing in how you came up the food chain is that I'm thinking most of the REIT CEOs that I know come up more from the transaction side of the business than the operation side of the business. I think even rare exception would be operational people coming to run businesses. And... I certainly see that too, Matt, and that's true. And so something that I did, not realizing how beneficial it would be to mm-hmm. me, it's just I've always liked sales. I've always liked deals. So there were times when especially because we went public in 1998. Right. So, and you're still in Virginia then. So I'm still in Virginia. It's all leased pretty well. Yeah, and now we're, now 80s, we're 90s. Nine, yes, Now we're 97% leased. Uh It's one of the best run areas of the company. And so when you go public, you do roadshows ahead of time. And investors and analysts, as part of their due diligence into new companies that may be going public or as they become public, (laughs) they will actually go and tour properties and get a feel for okay, what is this company, what's its management, and what's its Mm -hmm. operations platform? So, of course, it's very easy since the closest market to New York, because most of these people sit in New York, and it's an easy train ride down to D.C. So once again, I was given exposure and had the opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. as we went public on doing tours, how you meet with investors, you meet with bankers, how you meet with Mm -hmm. analysts, because I was the operations person for the East Coast, Mm -hmm. and they were touring my properties. Now, most of the time, they were interested in talking with Ron about the financing and the structure and the balance sheet but i was there listening and learning right it's interesting i did an areit panel uh, a couple years ago and i had two reit analysts talking and we were speaking in front of a group of hr executives within the reit world and we were talking about how the reit analysts dig in to understand a company at least the people we were with one of them was ross smotrich who's a good friend and wonderful guy and he said that when he does those tours, maybe referring the back of his mind to experience with you, maybe or not, but he said when you see that the stuff they say up top in the boardroom is actually translated consistently at the site level, then you know the company has it because otherwise it's words. Okay, so continue okay. your story. You're in okay, Virginia. So We're no. now up to 98. So right. We have a long way to go here. Right. So, well, the rest then, uh-huh. we go public, right? Uh-huh. And so now I've had opportunities, to, as we've said, to be in corporate, to be in field, mm-hmm. leasing, management. We go public, and then we start to grow. Mm-hmm. And so basically, very often I was told, okay, Focus on your operations. Don't worry about the acquisitions Mm -hmm. because we don't want you to get distracted. Mm -hmm. Uh, But reality was I 
maybe a little bit of subterfuge, I would get to the acquisition guys and I would say, oh, please let me tour with you and talk with you because that was my way of working with them to make sure there was proper underwriting. And I could also learn about a property ahead of time. So figure out, okay, how am I going to staff this? How are we going to lease it? And then what sort of a capital plan do I need to put in place so that we can execute from day one of ownership? Uh, The acquisition guys loved it Mm -hmm. because then, you know, you get an OM and I could say, okay, that rate might be too low or too high. Mm -hmm. Here's what you can do with the tenant. So it really, to me, was a perfect partnership in underwriting and then making that transition from acquisitions to operations. Mm -hmm. So, and then plus... I've always, like I said, I have always loved to sell. So that sort of satisfied that transaction part in my bones that I always enjoyed. Uh Um, So we started growing. And then, like I said earlier, Ron went upstairs. Joe comes on board, new CEO. He had enormous experience because Speaker Properties was a REIT focused on the West Coast There were many times I could have left the company Mm -hmm. to make more money. Mm -hmm. But I know now in retrospect, Mm -hmm. if I had done that, Mm -hmm. I would not be where I am today necessarily. Mm -hmm. Because there was just a wealth of experiences that I was exposed to that gave me the full picture for stepping up and becoming CEO. Opportunity kept being offered to you to grow. And I know in the business world, about half the people kind of yawn at that opportunity because they're too busy. Right. And other people are always seeking those broadening experiences so they can keep growing. Right. And you were put into an operations role. You were a woman operations role. That's comfortable in real estate. But you kept growing. Right. And that part of you kept wanting those more experiences, and they saw it and they offered it to you. And that combination's explosive. It's a great thing. It really is. As great as my mentors were, Mm -hmm. I would go and ask. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything wasn't roses and honey all 30 years that I've been here. I mean, there was a time where I wanted to become a divisional vice president, and twice men were hired, Uh uh, and I wasn't given the promotion. Uh It would be very easy to say, okay, that's because I was a woman. Right. But I made the phone call, and I said, okay, twice now Uh I haven't gotten this. Right. Talk to me about why. Mm -hmm. And this is where integrity, being honest Mm -hmm. and upfront and Mm -hmm. talking with someone Mm -hmm. is critical. Right. Because I was told that I wasn't seen as that level of an executive leader, mm. which is a hard thing to hear. Really hard to hear. Really Good hard. Good thing to hear because you were. Well, <laughs> but I wasn't. Yet. And yet. Okay. And this was Ron Havner. And Ron said, but you know what I'll do for you because you want this. Uh-huh. We'll make the investment. Uh They sent me to the Center of Creative Leadership, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing organization. Mm -hmm. And I did a very intensive immersement week of leadership training Uh where you get 360s, you get one-on-one time, you work with leaders in other companies. Most Fortune 500 companies utilize this. Mm -hmm. And what I learned, two critical things that were holding me back. What were they? Well, the first one was self-awareness of myself and how I'm perceived. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go into everything, but it was very personal and It was a real wake-up call to me. Hmm. There were three nights during that week where I went home crying. But if you can push through that, and with CCL, they did follow-up training, Hmm. follow-up coaching. Uh And then I took that on myself, brought it to my leadership team here at the company at PS Business Parks, and we worked on my leadership skills. Mm -hmm. And so that was my development, was to become a leader. And then two years later, I got that promotion. 
uh-huh. to divisional vice president. So let's talk about that for a minute. It's really, it's really interesting. Uh, so sometimes leaders are born, sometimes leaders become, right? right. I, I was not born a leader. I have a bit of a leadership role, and it was awkward for me. Yes. And your self-perception, you said, I was always competitive, I was always ambitious, but you weren't yet a leader. Correct. The other thing you said, I'll like put all these together, was you asked for it. And one thing I advise people is if they ask for it at the moment, it never works. So if you say, hey, if you don't give me this, I'm going to quit, that's one message. Right. If it's, hey, I want to become this, over the next five years, I want to get to this place, or the next 10 years, I have this ambition, help me get there. Totally different question. Right. That's the question you asked. Right. And then they gave you tools and answers to right. then make it happen, which you had to make it happen. It didn't just... Right. And it, this wasn't an overnight transformation. This right. definitely was work on my part. The other thing that came out from my week was, because I'm naturally an optimistic, very sales-oriented person, and so I come across, everything's great, everything's great, but then when something goes wrong, it was almost like flipping a switch. Mm. So that also came out during my week through the 360 review. And so I got coaching on, okay, everything can't be great. And then suddenly you turn around on an employee and they suck. So that was Uh maturation on my part Uh to learn that Uh as well as self-awareness as a leader. Uh And so those two things, you know, you recognize it in the week. But what so often happens is, okay, yes, this week was great. And then you go back to all your old habits. Right. But you have to learn from it, Uh just like you learn skills. And it's a skill. I truly believe that. And you used the word early in the conversation, if you had a sponsor, I think your sponsor is now a different person. But were your sponsors in the organization understanding of this, so they were making an investment, and they would help you along the way here? Oh, absolutely. Uh Absolutely. First with Ron, well, first with, you know, coming into commercial properties, then with Ron, and then with Joe, because Uh there was a nice handoff from Is Joe there? Who was the CEO when you were the Center for Creative Right, that was Ron. Okay. But but then that was right before the transition to Joe. But Uh under Ron, I got promoted to divisional. Uh Then there was the nice handoff. Uh And part of the handoff from Ron to Joe was, here's your team. And then I remember driving in a car with Joe as I'm showing him the properties in, in Virginia and Maryland, and then him talking to me specifically about what I want and need from him as a boss. Mm-hmm. And that was very impressive. Not every boss does that. Right. What yeah. can you do for me? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it was what we needed from him in the field. Right. And so, so I feel very fortunate with mm-hmm. the two CEOs that I had that not only were good for the company, uh-huh. but I think that what both of them realized that to have a good company, you uh-huh. need good people. Uh-huh. And if you have the right people, the company will be uh-huh. in good hands and the numbers will take care of themselves. Uh-huh. Okay, so you come to California. When did you come right. back to California? Where was that in the period of Joe's transition and right. all the succession planning? So what happened there was I knew that Ron was thinking succession planning and talking with Joe about succession planning, but that was not shared with me. And so if there's something else that's a tidbit of advice, yeah. if you want to accelerate your career, uh-huh. be willing to be mobile mm. and be willing to move. Mm-hmm. Because now I have 25 years in Virginia, right. had built my dream house. In fact, it was still under construction when I got the call. Hey, you're now CAO of the company. I'd like to have all my leadership under one roof here in Glendale. And we'd like you to move back. Mm-hmm. There was not the promise that, hey, we're having you do this. So mm-hmm. as president and as part of the succession plan, which if they had said that, I wouldn't have even had to think for a minute. Right. But that wasn't the carrot that they held out. It was, okay, let's have management together, and mm-hmm. now you're part of the senior management team. And so I said, I'll move. 
if mm-hmm. that's what the company wants. I mm-hmm. don't have children, mm-hmm. so I was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And my husband, very supportive. We come you back. Still write science fiction. That's right. Cross country. We're, we come back to L.A. And then that's when I'm told at the end of 2015 mm-hmm. that I got promoted to president. Mm. Wow. And then, so you're, and when did you move here? So you moved back in? Back in, I moved back in 15. Oh, in 15. Right. And that's when and they the, said, And then this it, is it. I was here, and then that's when they said, okay. And then that's when I was told about the big transition. Right. So I became president, had a year with uh-huh. Joe as CEO, me yeah. as president. In 16, I became CEO uh-huh. and president and was elected to the board of directors uh-huh. for PS Business Parks. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what, how does the world change when you move from Virginia or even CAO or regional head to president and CEO? How does your viewpoint of the world change? How's your breadth of perspective? How does your agenda, how does your behavior, just what happens? Okay, so what I would say is for any level under president and CEO, your world is a little bit smaller. Uh You're aware of the impact of what I would call investor bias. You know that's out there. You know there's the capital uh, markets. But when you're CAO, you're really focused on what you need to do there. And and even when I was CAO, I was still very involved in leasing Uh management and acquisitions Uh and dispositions. But it's not that strategic forward-looking that you have as CEO and president. Mm -hmm. Because for me, and maybe I just do this to myself, but now as CEO, I'm constantly thinking, okay, how do I keep this well-oiled machine moving forward in the future? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I truly was handed a well-oiled machine from Ron and from Joe. And how do I keep outperforming the Navy Index or the S&P 500? Mm -hmm. Because that's the history they had built up for this company. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's the development because we've been long-term holders of Uh large pieces of property. And by that, I mean, we have parks that go up to 224 acres. Mm -hmm. And these are in very infill locations in just top-tier markets in the United States. Mm -hmm. So now we're thinking redevelopment. So like I said, so if Ron created us and created the balance sheet and the culture, Joe refined the markets, now I feel and I hope I'm as successful as they are, <laughs> right. and that's the expectation they have, is that I will refine our product uh-huh. and then move us forward. And so now we're thinking redevelopment opportunities uh-huh. as we continue to grow uh-huh. our industrial platform. So I'm going to want to ask about the redevelopment. Okay. And with disclosure to our guests, we're working on a search together around your redevelopment work. So, Correct. But we'll drill down on that in a second. But I want to go back to the question of perspective when you become president and CEO. Okay. And I think of altitude and I think of breadth. And my guess is CAO, you kind of go all the way down to 200 feet all the time, and then you've got to get back to 10,000 feet. Correct. But when you're the president, you go to 20,000 feet, but you never go below 5,000 feet. Or, <laughs> and then you're going to really wide. Right. And then you're also thinking, okay, what is my 10-year CEO-ness going to be about? Right. right. Where am I going to make my mark? So then you have to think broad and strategic. Correct. As so you gave the headline of the redevelopment. Right. And it also feels like you already had the tools to go that broad because those which you had been developing, you didn't know it, but you were. Right. And that's true, Matt. And and here's something else I will say. I I call it the CEO filter. Mm. Having come up from the grassroots, literally, of this company, it was funny. I thought, oh, things won't change once I become CEO. I'll still be connected. But Mm -hmm. that, that, no, that doesn't happen. There's like the CEO filter. And so one of the other things that's very important Mm -hmm. is that, and I heard another CEO say this, it has resonated with me. If you hear about a problem when you're CEO, Mm -hmm. immediately you need to recognize it's probably worse than what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. So I need to jump on this immediately. Mm -hmm. And that has been very good advice. 
And so that has been a good lesson for making that jump to that level says, of hey, leadership. Maybe you should know something's happening. Or that we means, think we uh-oh. have might be having a problem <laughs> with this customer or, or whatever. So what you always need to do is make sure that door remains open as CEO right. so people feel safe coming into your office and letting you know. Uh-huh. Because it's always best to face the problem up front right. on day one. Also, the danger I would think would be it's a, time management's a silly word. But I would think that the things that you used to be able to dive down into, you have to triage and not do a whole lot of that anymore. And you and have to trust seductive, your team. So you got to right. move up. You don't move up your dead. That's right. And I have to trust the team because hmm. it's very easy me for me to dive back in, especially if it's a big deal that I initially did myself. So right. when that renewal comes up, I have to step back and let my divisional team do their thing. Yeah. Because you're right, I would be torn in a million different directions otherwise. And your mind has to go to strategic. It has to. Or else right. you're, you're so, so back to strategic. So talk about this redevelopment thing that you're doing. Talk about industrial, talk about office, talk about how office is transitioning okay. to something else for you guys. Okay. So. Until a couple of years ago, we were a REIT that specialized in multi-tenant buildings Mm -hmm. and multi-building parks for office and industrial. Mm -hmm. Office was always a much smaller part of our portfolio. Mm -hmm. It was never more than, I want to say at its height, 25%. Mm-hmm. of the company's footprint. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've always been more industrial focused, which makes sense coming out of the warehouse business of public storage. And so, but what we recognized is that what happened, because we're long-term holders of these properties, some of these properties, you know, we've owned since, well, since public storage owned them in the 70s. Right. And what has happened is in markets, whether it's D.C., L.A., the Bay Area, Seattle, mm-hmm. As those urban centers have grown and mass transit has gone further into the suburbs, some of these suburban industrial or office parks are have now become urban infill. Mm-hmm. So we did a big strategic overlook, and what we recognized is, okay, we're much more successful because now we have 20 years under our belt. And we do about 2,000 transactions a year. We track every single transaction. Mm -hmm. So we knew exactly what is our niche, what's our best customer size, what's most productive. And what we saw was good times, bad times, the office is a drag. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, we're going to exit office unless it's office we can redevelop. Mm. And by redevelop, we have looked and we've seen that multifamily is actually something that works well with our small tenant industrial platform. So what do I mean by that? Okay, what I mean by that is that in industrial, about 10 to 13% of your NOI is chewed up by the capital requirements of your assets. Mm -hmm. That's true in apartments. Mm -hmm. For office, it's 30%, Mm. okay? We're small tenant. So I used to describe them on an investor tours as, if you like apartments, you like our small tenant strategy because we're basically industrial apartments, Mm. a little company, because there's millions of small businesses in America. Everyone chases the Fortune 500, but there's millions of these little companies. So if you keep your space generic and it's very easy. A customer moves out, you paint the office portion, clean up the warehouse, the new customer moves in. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how apartments operate, mm-hmm. right? Low, low friction, low volatility. Exactly. And so so we said, okay, and now we're sitting on, for instance, our Tyson's location. We have 45 contiguous acres that had 750,000 mm-hmm. of Class C office and... We're right between two metro stations that are Mm -hmm. brand new, just opened in 2014. Mm -hmm. And Tyson's is evolving. And you said Class C office. Class C office. I've been in, I think it's a B, but that's okay. But (laughs) but it's interesting because Class C office in a suburban location that's getting dense, you're going to have to either redevelop it 
to a new version of Class B office. Or A. Or A office right, right there. or But now you're right. in the redevelopment game no matter how you play it. Because that Class exactly. C office in that location. That, eh, eh, and no. not high as the best use at all. Exactly. Okay, cool. So I, we started with a toe in the water because we are a conservative company. Mm-hmm. But again, I was still in Virginia. So I, I kind of shepherded this because when we bought the property, there was a building that had been vacant for seven years. So anyway, I'm not going to get into all the details, but we had a, built a great relationship with Fairfax County. Mm-hmm. We built an apartment building, highly successful, exactly what the market needed. And so then we went now and we rezoned the other 40 acres and that got approved last year. Mm-hmm. And now we're pulling the trigger on the second development and we're densifying, you know, in a market that has 240,000 employees, mm-hmm. but only 20,000 residents. But it is what was suburban office is now urban infill. Mm-hmm. So we're being very careful. We're 95% leased at that park, so obviously taking NOI offline Mm. will be very cautious. It will Mm -hmm. be very phased. But now this tired Class C office location now has a future as a new neighborhood in the heart of Tyson's Mm -hmm. in McLean, Virginia, Mm -hmm. one of the top 10 school districts in the United States. And... There's an amazing future because I'm taking 750,000 square feet of tired office and turning it into 3.4 million square feet of a new neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And you have this opportunity in other places in your portfolio as well. Yes, we do. So question about that, and I'm remembering history. And so in history, when the new era of REITs started in the mid-90s, there were um, multi-sector REITs. Yes. One called Glenborough, I'm remembering. Glenborough flew high. They were a client. And then about three, four years into that game, all the multi-sector REITs, except for Vernado, I think, like, they all got killed because it was a bad (laughs) thing to be multi-sector. You had to be a sharpshooter. So all the REITs became sharpshooters. And that has been the play now for 20 years or 15 years, whatever that time period is. But you're now saying, mm, well, wait a minute, because we could be industrial and multifamily at some point in the next 10 years as you develop this stuff. How does that sit in the world that didn't like multi-sector but now might again? Last comment to this, you wouldn't be alone in that because a lot of the retail center operators, Federal, for example, or Westfield, some of these others are doing the same thing they have to so it's boston properties that's right okay yeah so multi-sector now is back in vogue or of necessity well and to that i think there's been a disruption in the commercial real estate world if you think about it Mm -hmm. whether it's the retail apocalypse the rise of e-commerce but there's also been a shift in where people want to live and how they want to live and work Right. right so you have to I think to be successful, you need to be open to change, willing to evolve, adapt to the new technology, and be aware of what does my customer base want and need. So all of these things are synergistic, and you right. need to be aware of it. But I, th- I think our message is we're an industrial REIT. Office was always a small component, uh-huh. and the multifamily is replacing that office component. Now, if it gets big enough, Mm -hmm. do we do what public storage did? Because they were many warehouses and then spun out a commercial property Mm -hmm. division. Mm -hmm. Does that get spun out? Or do we say, you know what? We're really not subject matter experts of this. Do we then create the future for some of these parks, but then maybe do we let them go? That's still to be determined. Mm-hmm. We have one apartment building under our <laughs> <this> belt. <point. laughs> right. But, and we'll figure this out because we will be thoughtful about what we do. But there is now a huge future open for this 45-acre property. It's funny. One thing I dislike is I like that E is, is put together with S and G because I think the environmental part is really different. And I think the environmental part, let's say you own warehouses, I'm wondering what the economics, that's a pure economic driver. Should you have solar on the roof? Right. And how is the business going to change in such a way that you're going to be put out of business? That's a, that's a numbers business strategy. The others might be nice to have is the wrong word. 
because governance really matters and social really matters and diversity really matters, but they matter in a different way than the things affecting the environment, particularly in a business like yours. Right. And there's a payback to environmental decisions. You can see the numbers, and I hope right. the numbers are such that they're encouraging people to make change. I, I think so. I mean, if you think about it, like when we developed a lead silver certified, and, you know, but those are all beneficial. Like, for instance, doing all LED lighting, well, that cuts down. It's operations. Right. That, that really, <laughs> right. your operations team loves that, right? right? If they only have a change of light bulb once every 15 years. But where that really helps, too, is the customers. Because right now, the industrial customers, it's, as you said, a hot sector. Well, property taxes are going up. Wages are going up. Mm-hmm. And so if you can do anything that can cut their leasing costs. So, for instance, a good reflective roof, a mm-hmm. green roof, mm-hmm. can cut their utility costs by up to, you know, they say 40 to 60%, but reality, I mean, easily 25%. And that speaks to the customer. So it's not just, oh, am I getting a check on the Grez report, right. you know, and then an endorsement from ISS, but it really is another way to service your customer. Yeah. And I grew up here in Southern California. I remember in the 70s before uh-huh. There were a lot of the environmental laws. When you literally, there were days when the inversion layer was so bad you were told to stay inside. Right. It's very nice coming back now. And that doesn't, I mean, the air is so much cleaner. When, Except on fire months. Well, okay, that's <laughs> In San true. Francisco, we stay inside sometimes now. <laughs> but it's so, it, again, I think the theme for me on that part of the subject, the environmental side of it, and you're saying it, it's an NOI, an investment decision, less than a check the box on the social, we feel good about it. Now, you get that too. Right. So that to me is a win-win. Yeah, yeah. win-win. So let's totally change the subject because we have to wrap up. Okay. Uh, We've talked about business throughout the conversation. I do know your husband does write science fiction novels, so you'll tell me which one to read. But tell us just one thing about Maria that we may not know that's not a business thing. All right. So I think people would be surprised to hear I'm actually shy. Uh-huh. And it's very painful for me to do something like this today. Or, you know, uh-huh. when at NAREIT, I'm asked to speak to yeah. 1,500 or 2,000 people. Uh-huh. And so I do get knotted up. I become very anxious. Uh-huh. But again, you have to step outside your shell. Right. And, you know, it can lead to great things. But, yes, I, I am a shy person. So I, some way I'm a shy person, too. I get knotted up before podcasts. I will admit this to you and the audiences because it's like a performance thing, right? I right. want it to be good. Right. I care so much. But you're so comfortable talking about these things with a smile. <laughs> and you're such a comfortable and warm person. But shyness can coexist with all of those behaviors. Right. So the last question on leading voices is always advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. And we sprinkled that throughout this conversation. But upon reflection at the end of the discussion, what what are your thoughts? Well, I would say, number one, your actions have to be based on integrity and ethics. Because you can learn. Obviously, you need to have a good personality and be bright. But real estate is not necessarily rocket scientists. Mm -hmm. And if you make a wrong decision, it's not like a doctor where, you know, you're going to kill someone. But it is a very personal business, whether you're dealing with your customers, your vendors, your neighbors. And to me, business is always personal. Mm -hmm. And you need to treat everyone in an ethical manner. Now, that doesn't mean people can walk all over you. Right. Uh, Because we're all in this to make money. The other thing I would say to young people is, is be willing to work, be willing to take some entry level jobs sometimes, because I know what that did to accelerate my career. And also be optimistic. So even if you hear something and you think you're losing maybe your number one largest customer in a market, well, What's your solution? And when you go to the boss, 
go to the boss, not just with the problem, but have a couple of alternatives and think it through. So be optimistic and then be open and willing to change because it is a changing and evolving business. Mm -hmm. Great advice. It's interesting. If I look at integrity and ethics, I, I don't know anyone who wouldn't say they have high integrity and high ethics. And if I look at optimistic, the word that I want to tie those together with is take the long view, which you used earlier. Because if you realize you're going to be in either a company for 30 years, which rarely happens, but you've done it, or an industry for 30 years, then that behavior also, the long view immediately comes in. And you know the the pessimism of I just lost a deal, there's going to be another one coming up. And the same with ethics, because it's, if you know you're going to be living with someone, you're going to deal with them again then you will change your behavior. Well, and commercial real estate is a small business. I mean, I know people all over the United States. And so don't burn your bridges because, you know, if you're senior, that young broker may someday, you know, 10 years, he might be the lead at the major house that you want to do a deal with and controlling a deal. And so it's just good business to treat people with friendliness, courtesy, and integrity. I mean, that's just basic to me. But it doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. Because the deal and the profit from this moment seem all-consuming. Right. And the ambition seems all-consuming at the second. So it's hard to balance those. Hey, Maria, thank you very much. This was delightful. Well, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.